Well, before we get into uh, God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You that Your Word is not bound. Many may be at home today watching from a computer, a television, or a phone. But we are the church. Whether we get to meet in the building or not, we are the church. And as a church, we are called to go forth, to make disciples. And so, Lord, I pray that as we sit in our homes today, or whether we're in the church building, or we may be some other place, that as we worship you, we will think of ways that we can reach out, ways that we can make a difference in our community to help those that are in need. Father, we ask that you would just bless us today. As we go into the study of your word, may your word speak to us. May we be drawn into your presence. May we have lives that we live that are similar to Paul's. Lord, that at our name, the demons will shudder because they know that we are men and women of God who find our power in you, who know that we have a message of grace and peace and love for this world, who have a message about your Son who came down to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, may the very gates of hell shudder when we step into their territory and we drag people from the fire. God, give us a boldness, give us wisdom, and we pray that you'll use us in a mighty, mighty way. Father, speak to us. Guide and direct us through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to continue in our series on why revival tarries. As we talk about why revival tarries, the goal and the purpose behind this is for us to understand that what God is desiring to do in each and every one of our individual lives. Right now we're at home. Many of you are at home. You're not here in the church and you wonder how can revival carry on from right here with all the devastation, with all the turmoil, with all the problems? The answer is very simple. God desires revival to begin in our homes. Men of God, it's time for you to stand up to be the leaders of your homes, to stand up to show your kids what it means to be men of God. Ladies, to be women of God, to show our children what it means to be in true harmony and unity with the church, even though we're not together. This is a time where we can really stand out and make a difference. And so when we talk about why Revival Terriers, the message this morning is simply entitled, Known in Hell. What does it take to be known in hell? And it comes from a familiar passage that many of you have probably read, but oftentimes is vastly overlooked. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 11 to 18, but we're really going to focus in on one verse, and then we're going to be looking at so many other things that help us to understand what it means to be known in hell. Acts 19, beginning in verse 11, and it reads, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jewish exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? 
And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. When we think about that passage, oftentimes it's overlooked, but casting out demons is something that we don't think of today in modern day church, but it does still take place. I know that sounds crazy to you. You would think that that was something that happened in biblical times, but a lot of people would say, are you sure it still happens today? And I believe it does. What's interesting is there is actually a denomination that tries to teach you how to cast out demons. They teach their priest how to cast out demons. They teach them a class. That if you go to cast out a demon, you better have some holy water, you better have a crucifix, and you better have the right mantra. But if we've learned anything, it has nothing to do with the elements that we take with us, and it has nothing to do with the mantra that we take with us. Because you think about what these guys said. They said, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. These men, that's exactly their agitation to try to bring these demons out was, we're trying to use the name of Jesus, and a lot of people would say, well, that's all it takes. Well, if you look at it, they beat them up, according to verse 16. They leap on them, overcome them, and chase them out naked. But what I really want to focus in on is on verse 15, and the statement that the evil spirit says. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. Isn't that interesting that the demons knew who Paul was? That really says something if you ask me. It's, it's one thing to be known by God. God knows all of our names. God has a personal relationship with us if we know him as our Lord and Savior. But the demons aren't omniscient. They don't know everything. But yet the demons knew who Paul was. That ought to say something to us. What does it take to be known in hell? What does it take for the demons to fear us? Now, a lot of people say, well, I think the demons should fear Jesus. I agree with you. They always did. They always bowed down. They always fell before him. But it obviously was something unique for Paul to be known by them as well. And I think we can have that same kind of mindset if we understand the three reasons why Paul was known in hell. The first thing we're going to look at is Paul's accomplishments. Paul's accomplishments. The first thing that Paul did was Paul did many miracles. When we look throughout the book of Acts, we can see many of these miracles take place. In Acts chapter 13, there was a sorcerer by the name of Bar-Jesus that came up to Paul and tried to refute him and stop him from preaching. And yet Paul caused him to become blind because he was already blinded spiritually. Paul caused him to become blind physically. According to Acts chapter 14 and verse 3, Paul did many signs and wonders. In Acts 14 verses 8 to 10, Paul healed a cripple there in Lystra. In Acts 14 verses 19 to 20, Paul had been stoned and left for dead. And the moment the crowd left him, he got up and he went back into the city. In chapter 16 of Acts, Paul cast out a demon from a young girl. Also in Acts 16, he had been free from prison by an earthquake. We come to Acts chapter 19, used handkerchiefs and aprons that fell from his body to heal people. Paul was able to perform many miracles. There were so many things that were going on in the life of Paul, and they knew that he had a message from God. Not only did Paul perform miracles, but he started many churches. In fact, at this time, he had specifically started 11 churches. He started a church in Cyprus, in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derbe, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. 11 churches he had started. 
Everywhere he went, it seemed that he started a church. He started a place for people to gather to worship God. But it wasn't just that he started churches. There were many salvations that happened during that time. In fact, in Acts 13, we see that there were many who came to know Christ in Antioch. There was a great multitude in Iconium. There were believers in Lystra. In in Acts 16, 5, it says that the churches increased daily. In the household of Philippi, in Philippi, Lydia's household, and the Philippian jailer and his family got saved. There was a great multitude from Thessalonica. Many believed in Berea. Some believed in Athens. Many Corinthians believed. And I love this in Acts 19.10. It says, And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Why? Because Paul shared the gospel. There were so many salvations. In fact, we believe at this time tens of thousands had gotten saved under Paul's ministry. I'm going to tell you, when you're out there reaching people for Jesus Christ, when you're out there telling others about what he's done for you, the demons will recognize who you are. They will know that you are a mighty warrior for the Son of God. They will know and be fearing you. Why? Because the Bible tells us in the book of Jude that we ought to charge into hell, dragging them from the fires. Paul did that. Not only that, but at this time, Paul had written three letters to the churches. The book of Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians had been written. Paul had just completed two missionary journeys. He had also suffered for the cause of Christ. No matter what they threw at Paul, he never stopped going. In 2 Corinthians 11, it tells us this. Paul speaks, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils by my own countrymen. In perils by heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness. In watchings often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. No matter what they tried to take from Paul. No matter what he faced. Even when he was beaten. Even when he was stoned. They could not stop him. They could not keep a good man down, as the old saying goes. He continued to preach the gospel. You know, it's interesting when we think about this, a lot of people say, well, I could never do many of these accomplishments. You're right. You may not be able to perform miracles, but we can believe in them. You may not be able to start churches, but you can be a part of one. What you can do, though, is you can be a part of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. You can be a part of people knowing the Lord. You can be a part of writing church letters to the churches, but I hope that the letters you write are encouraging letters. You can be a part of being on mission for God and going on journeys. You can be a part of suffering for the cause of Christ. You can be a part of so many of the things that Paul was a part of, but you have to step out of your comfort zone, and you have to do what God has called you to do. Paul's accomplishments were great, and this is one of the reasons why Paul was known in hell. I believe the second reason why Paul was known in hell was his armory. Paul's armory. I believe there were eight things that Paul had in his armory. Probably had many more. But I'm going to focus on eight this morning. Number one, Paul had the grace of God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. 
For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. The message of God's grace is one that the demons cannot stand. You see, the demons were just fine before Jesus came. They were just fine with the message of the Pharisees and the scribes. That it was all about following the law. And not just following the law, but following a man-made law. They were just fine with that message. Why? Because they knew that message would not save any of mankind. You see, the demons were just fine with the Sadducees' beliefs. Another religious group. They were just fine with a group that didn't believe in miracles, didn't believe in angels, and didn't believe in the resurrection. They were just fine with believing a group that had a message that could send people to hell. But all of a sudden, when Jesus Christ came and a message of grace abounded, the demons began to shudder. When they realized on the day of the crucifixion that they had actually lost, they believed they had won. But three days later, when he rose up from the dead, they knew they had lost. The message of grace would then profoundly go out to all people. For by grace are ye saved. It's not by works. It's not by anything that we can boast about. Paul banked on the grace of God. In fact, throughout his books, he writes about this grace that God has given to all mankind. The message has gone forth that every single person in the world can be saved. That Jesus Christ died for all. And that all they have to do is put their faith and their trust in him, not in themselves but turn from their wicked ways. Man, that's an armory that we can all hold on to is the grace of God. If you've been saved, you know it's by God's grace. There is nothing in you worthy of the grace of God. The word grace simply means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. It does not belong to us, but it is extended to us by the hand of God. We all have that message in the armory. We all have the message that we can share with others about how God has changed this world by sending his son to die on the cross for their sins. There is no greater piece of the armor for a Christian than to share the grace of God with the world. Not only did Paul have the grace of God in his armory, he also had the word of God in his armory. I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We do not desire to preach men's word. That's the problem that's going on today, is there are many pulpits that are not sharing the Word of God. They're preaching the wisdom of men. And I'm here to tell you, you're wasting your time. Wasting your time. Why? Because salvation doesn't come by the wisdom of men. It comes by the power and the Spirit of God. And the power and the Spirit of God come through the preaching of His Word because it is the inspired and errant Word of God that must be proclaimed from the pulpits. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, 11, that God's Word will not come back void. But it will do exactly what God intended it to do. Paul had the word of God. In fact, what's interesting for Paul is that Paul wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books of the Bible. Paul had the word of God embedded in his heart so much that when he penned out these letters, God considered them to be inspired and divine words that came from him and shared it with those churches. And we now have that collection of Paul's writing. Not all of Paul's letters were founded and put into the Bible. 
But these were the inspired books that God produced through him, through his spirit. And Paul began to write these books down so that we might understand a better way of becoming the church of God that he's called us to be. But it is the word of God that we must hold on to. It's often interesting when people begin to share the gospel. I love being able to use my own testimony. But my testimony is not the word of God. The word of God is that which saves It is the word of God is what changes people's lives. We can use our testimonies, but we better make certain that we use God's word because that is what we have in our armory. Number three, the third thing Paul had in his armory was he had no fear of death. No fear of death. Romans 8 and verses 38 and 39. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death cannot separate us from God. I love a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting was taken out of death when Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Death had been defeated and we became victorious. Death has no hold over us. That's why Paul could make the statement in Philippians 1.21 to live is Christ and to die is gain. In these unprecedented times, many people are fearful of death. Can I just tell you something? I'm, I'm not worried about death. I'm not worried about where I'm going. Now I'm not going to lie to you. I worry about how I'm going to go. But I don't worry about dying. I don't worry about one day when I breathe my last breath where I'm going to be because my Bible tells me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At that point, I will receive my eternal gift. I will receive the gift that I've been longing for, the gift that I've been searching for, the gift that I have been desiring above all things. Therefore, we don't have need of fearing dying. Paul never feared death. And that's why. Why? And the fourth tool. He was already dead is the way he saw it. Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. It is a reminder of Jesus' own words to his disciples. you got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul said, I've taken up my cross daily. I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer my life. I'm already dead. This life is not mine to live. I have nothing to live for other than to live for Christ. So if he chooses to take me on, my life is already dead. My life is already over. It's already his. I just get to go be with him eternally. Man, if we come to that recognition then we realize that, guess what? Life is not about all the toys we can get in this world. Life is not about all the things that we desire to purchase or the vacations we desire to go on. Life is not looking forward to retirement one day when we get to sit at home and do nothing. Trust me, you're getting a taste of it right now. If that's what you're living for, I hope you can see it's not what you should be living for. You see, the truth of the matter is the things in this world cannot compare to what we're going to receive one day. And that was Paul's fifth part of his armory. His eternal promises. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says this. 
For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And if you're living for the things of this world, Jesus told us that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. What was he saying? He was saying this. He's saying, store up your treasures in heaven in that passage in Matthew 6. Why? He says, where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Man, Paul understood that my gifts, the things that I'm living for aren't here, but they are already going on ahead of me. Paul was living for a couple of things. One, he wanted to see more people in heaven with him. He knew that that was the greatest gift that he got to take with him, was leading somebody to Jesus and he would see them again one day in heaven. But not only that, Paul talked about these crowns, these crowns that he was working for, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. And he knew that one day he would receive these crowns in heaven. He knew that they would be incorruptible, imperishable, and forever with him. When you think about these things, he recognized his eternal promises. But I love what Romans 8 and verse 18 where Paul says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time Are you listening? It's exactly what we're talking about right now. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I had a wise pastor friend tell me one time, he said, would you rather have temporary joy for eternal suffering? Or temporary suffering with eternal joy. It depends on what you're living for. If you're trying to have your best life now, you will. Because your eternity won't be the best. But if you understand that even in the midst of these sufferings, these difficult times, these hardships, if you go without a paycheck, you go without certain things, if you're going through these difficulties, you recognize this doesn't compare. It only makes you long to go home. His eternal promises. Also in his armory was his faithful battle. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take up unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in an evil day and having done all to stand. Paul knew who the enemy was. The enemy is not our government. The enemy is not our country. Man, I've seen so many posts... People railing our government, railing our president, railing the Democrats, tearing into... That's not our enemy. If we're fighting against... If if we thought that the government was going to fix our country, we were fooling ourselves. The government was never going to change us. It is the church that is called to change the world, not the government. The government is working for one country and one country alone. We are working for the world. We're going to change the world. Therefore, we got to understand, guess what? It's not our government's fault for this virus that's going around. Oh, well, they could have stopped. 
Who knows what they could have done? What we do know is that God is bringing us to a point where we can get on our knees and we can fight the real enemy, which is Satan. It is sin that brought viruses and diseases and problems into this world. It is sin, your sin, my sin, that has caused these problems, not our government. It is sin, plain and simple. And the greatest need we have is a need to get our hearts right. His battle was against the real enemy. It was against Satan and the principalities and the rulers of the darkness of this world. We are got to fight the right enemy. And we've got to fight him on our knees. We have got to fight him in the power of Christ. We have to stay true in the battle. Not only did he have a faithful battle, we also see another part of his armory was his battle cry. Philippians 3.13, I love his brethren. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Let me tell you something. The problem that we live in today is we're always looking behind us. So often, Satan will bring up our past and he'll tell us, you're not worthy. Can I just go ahead and tell you, you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. None of us are worthy. But man, if we stay focused on our path, we will never be able to run the race that is set before us. Paul's battle cry was to recognize that, guess what? When God has forgiven me of my past, it is over. It is done with. It is paid for. It is finished. It is not being brought back up. Stop allowing the enemy to take you back to your past. If you have been forgiven, it has been forgotten. If you have been let, if God has let go of that sin, then it's time for you to let go of it. If God has let your past go, stop holding on to the past. Paul didn't look back and say, man, I killed a whole bunch of Christians. I was there holding the rags as they stoned Stephen. I preached against the church. I was dragging people out of the church. I was doing everything I could to destroy the church. Paul didn't hold on to his past. He allowed his past to fuel his future. He allowed himself to press forward to the mark for the prize of the whole calling of God of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to reach forward. I'm going to press forward. I'm going to push on. I'm not going to let Satan control me with my past. And if you need that today, let it go. Let it go. But I also love his final piece in his armory. It's his final declaration. Verse 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Have you fought the good fight? Can you say today, if today was it, you had finished your race? Have you kept the faith? Paul was facing getting ready to be beheaded for his faith, and he never once trembled. He never once shuddered. He was ready to go. Do you understand when you look at Paul's armory why the demons knew who he was? They knew he stood on the grace of God through the word of God. He never feared death because he was already dead. Held on to the promises of the future, was battling the right people, had the right battle cry, forgetting his past, and knew where he was going when he died. Hell shuddered when Paul came into town. Hell shuddered 
when he stood against their demons. And hell shuddered when he preached the gospel of God. Now you understand why he was known in hell. Not only do we see Paul's accomplishments and his armory. Lastly, let's look at Paul's anchor. Paul's anchor. I believe we need this today. It's Philippians 4 verses 11 to 13. One is a very familiar verse, but is often quoted out of context. I want you to listen to this. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11 through 13. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I believe Paul is preaching familiar words that came from David in the Psalms. Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. In other words, if I lose everything in this life, as long as I have you, I have everything I need. I mean, you think about what Paul's saying here. I know what it's like to be abased, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know what it's like to be poor and have nothing, and I know what it's like to have plenty of money. He says, I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to be full. Many of you are probably experiencing the full side right now, because staying at home, all you do is eat, right? But a lot of people are scared, because their pantries are empty. They don't have a lot of food. Some of you have been hoarding it, and keeping others who are in need from being able to buy what they need. But let me give you this bit of advice, something that Travis said earlier. He read those verses from Luke that are so true. If God supplies for the birds, how much more will he take care of you? I can assure you, you will not do without. As a church, if you have a need, we will help you in any way we can. Call us. Let us know your need. We will do everything we can to take care of it. Why? Because that's what God has called us to do. But I love what he says here. Everybody loves to quote this verse. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. What is, what is Paul meaning by that? Is he saying I can go out here and do whatever I want as long as God is strengthening me? No, what he's saying is, is I know what it's like to be hungry and I know what it's like to be full. I know what it's like to have and I know what it's like to have not. And as long as I got Christ, I've got everything I need. I got everything I need. That was Paul's anchor. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said when he talked about Paul. He said this, He had no side issues, no books to sell. He had no ambitions and so had nothing to be jealous about. He had no reputation and so had nothing to fight about. He had no possessions and therefore nothing to worry about. He had no rights So therefore, he could not suffer wrong. He was already broken, so no one could break him. He was dead, so none could kill him. He was less than the least, so who could humble him? He had suffered the loss of all things, so none could defraud him. Do you understand why he was known in hell? And I wonder so often, what about us? 
What are we living for? Are we trying to live for what we can gain in this world? And if we are, if, if we're living and not basing ourselves on these promises of God, on the armor of God, if we're basing our life on what we can gain in this life, then man, this virus has probably got you concerned and scared. This virus has probably got you in your home worried about whether you're going to contract it. This virus has probably got you concerned and worried about where your next meal is going to come from. This virus may have you concerned about where you're going to be when you're gone. But man, if you already have things settled, if you already have things right, then you're not worried about any of these things. You're not worried at all about where you're going to go. You're not worried at all about where your next meal is going to come from. You're not worried at all about what God is going to do for you. My question for you this morning is really simple. Based on your accomplishments, your armory, and your anchor, would you be known in hell? If not, what needs to change? What needs to change? 